Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Conversations on life, style, beauty, and relationships. It's the Velvet's Edge podcast with Kelly Henderson. One of the main reasons I started the Velvet's Edge podcast was my complete fascination with why humans do what we do, how we got to where we got, and how we continue growing and learning to truly live our lives and our greatest purpose. One thing I've learned is that a common denominator between most humans is the interest and sometimes struggle in dating, marriage, and relationship dynamics in general. I have yet to meet a person who has any of these topics perfectly figured out, but I have met many people who have the insight within these realms that has opened my eyes to and given me just so many aha moments to some of my own personal struggles and triumphs within a relationship. I wanted to put some of my favorite learning moments into one podcast to answer the questions you guys may have, but also to hopefully give you guys new tools and understanding to either find the relationship you want, grow through a breakup, or strengthen the current relationship you are in. Author of Breaking Up and Bouncing Back and How to Love Successfully, Samantha Burns. One of the main things you talk about is finding out if your core values line up. So can you give us like some more examples of those things? Absolutely. So I go really in depth on that in um, Breaking Up and Bouncing Back. So if you want like a whole list of those, definitely check out the book. But so core values to me are what matters most to you. So something that's a core value for one person might not be a core value for someone else. So this could be, and I walk you through everything from, you know, your work-life balance, career aspirations, the environment. Like one person might be really jazzed about recycling and minimizing their carbon footprint, while someone else might care a ton about health and fitness and living an active lifestyle. Someone might, you know, go to church every Sunday or someone um, might really want to start a family. So they're, they're very like goal-oriented towards finding someone else who wants to have kids. Someone, you know, who has family values. Well, that, that can mean so many different things. So what does family values mean? Like one person might have dinner with their family, you know, every single 
um, Friday night or might still live with their family or just might really enjoy talking to them on the phone. And they want to also, you know, find someone who's just as enthusiastic about spending quality family time. So it's really about kind of figuring out what matters most to you, what governs your life. And then also I kind of group in with core values, things like kind of like your life vision or goals. So maybe you really want to make a lot of money and retire early and move out to the country, or maybe you um, want to travel the world or you, you know, you really want marriage and kids. So whatever kind of your life goals are, you want to find someone who also shares a similar life path or life goals so that you're working towards the same things together. Um, And what I see though, is like people aren't necessarily dating with intent and when dating with intent means aligning your core values so they might be getting together because they share a friend group and so their friends you know they have in common so you keep seeing the same groups of people and maybe you start hooking up that way or you have really hot passionate sex with someone so you get kind of addicted to the physical chemistry even though there's no really underlying fundamental um connection so i think aligning core values is a very pragmatic approach to love Um, And it's not the sexiest approach to love, but that's what's going to create a foundation for you guys to build off of in the long run. Um, And the biggest mistake people make, they compromise on their core values. And that will always lead to resentment in a relationship. Relationship coach and founder of the Breakup Bootcamp, Amy Chan. I say this not because there was something wrong with me. And for anyone listening, it's not because there's something wrong with you or that you are broken and you need to be fixed. It's that we have belief systems that are often lodged deep in our subconscious mind. And many times, if we're not getting the outcomes that we want, especially in love, it's because those belief systems are dysfunctional. And so that is the foundation of what programs us to feel the way we do and act the way we act and choose the people that we choose when it comes to relationships. You know what I heard in that that I think is so interesting, and this has been uh, very much my experience as well, is when you said they all looked very different, but they were exactly the same, actually, about all the men you dated. And I've always dealt with that because every single boyfriend I've ever had has looked really different. And so people are like, you don't really have a type. Like, I think that's so interesting. (laughs) The older I've gotten and the more work I've done on myself, I'm like, oh, no, I have a type. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. I very much have a type. And they're all exactly alike. And the dynamic in our relationship is the same, although Mm -hmm. it just presents itself a little bit differently externally. Yeah. So fascinating to me. Why is that? So isn't there something um, I was reading on your site about just the subconscious patterns in love, which is what you sort of just described. But why is that? Are we just trying to heal our old relationships with these new relationships? Yeah. So um, there is something called attractions of deprivation um, coined by an author and researcher named Ken Page. And he describes this as um, adults, as adults, we try to recreate the original scene of the crime. And so that our subconscious mind thinks that if we recreate it, we can actually solve what we couldn't solve as a child. So for example, if I was only to give more and do more, maybe finally I will earn that love now, that love that I was never able to earn when I was a young child with my father. And so um, our mind works in loops. So if there's an open loop and you weren't able to figure that out as a child, 
you almost recreate that scenario over and over again, trying in an attempt to solve it now. And, and there's other things. So um, there's also something called attachment theory, which is um, super fascinating. By the age of around two years old, we develop an attachment system, a style on how we're going to relate romantically as adults. And there's three main different attachment styles. And um, the first one is secure. Researchers say this is about 50% of the population. And people who have a secure attachment style, they um, are not codependent. They are open to receiving and giving love. When there's an argument or a fight, they don't turn it into a catastrophe. They do not put their identity or their sense of self-worth on the validation of their partner. And um, they are very even keel in um, emotional distress. And so this is a product of parents who were able to be consistent with their caregiving, uh, attuned to their needs. And so the child actually grows up um, instead of the, the, the attachment system to the parents now transfers on to the attachment system they have with a primary partner and they feel safe and they feel secure and they feel supported and they're able to go out into the world and explore and know that they have a safe base. Did you say now, 50% of our society? That's what, yeah. Where it's, are it's these boy, people? I, <laughs> I haven't met any. <laughs> well, what might be fascinating to you then you may fall into one of these other categories. Yes. So I'll explain the avoidant attachment style. Um, this is usually the product of parents who were uh, enmeshing their child, meaning they treated their child as if they had to have an adult responsibility. So it could have been the child acted as a therapist, the stand-in father, the stand-in mother, um, something other than being the child. They had to take on the role of an adult. Uh, it or a child who had very over-controlling parents. Um, this can also lead to someone growing up to have an avoidant attachment. And what happens with people who have an avoidant attachment is they actually subconsciously suppress their attachment system. So this means they might be able to get into relationships, but they always keep an emotional distance. And what happens is when someone gets too close, they will do what's called deactivating strategies, meaning they will do things that will actually squelch intimacy. So for example, this might look like you go on a romantic weekend with someone and um, suddenly after you get back, the person pulls away and needs space and starts to be aloof and inconsistent. Um, because in their mind, they're like, oh my gosh, it's too much pressure, it's too close. And then they kind of freak out and they retreat. And so this is an example where they're squelching intimacy but they don't know what's going on. So if you're not aware of attachment theory, you just think that this is normal. Another tendency for people who have an avoidant attachment style is they might be chasing a unicorn. Um, so, you know, things might go well in the first few weeks or the first few months, and then suddenly all the imperfections flood in and they're constantly looking for someone better because the unicorn just can't be found. Um, so those are examples of avoidance. And then the third, um, which is makes up most of the women who come to renew who have an anxious attachment style. Oh so 
This is usually the product of inconsistent caregiving. Sometimes your needs were met, sometimes they weren't, and it's a very um, dysregulated nervous system. And so people who have an anxious attachment style, they have a fundamental fear of being abandoned or rejected at any time. And so if they ever sense that there's a threat to the connection, uh, their nervous system goes on like total alarm cells, and they actually can't calm down until connection is reestablished. They might engage in what's called protest behavior, which looks like you send a text message and you don't hear back for four hours from your partner and um, you're like, oh, screw you. I'm going to just wait four days until I message you back. Or you um, might keep calling crazy, crazy, like over and over and over again. Um you might even date someone and start being like, oh my gosh, I'm really feeling something for this person. I'm going to just go and uh, date this other person here on the side just to take the edge off. And so um, anxious are drawn to avoidance and avoidance are drawn to anxious. And the key thing that really differentiates them is avoidance have an inherent fear that their freedom and their independence is going to be taken away. Mm. And Anxious have an inherent fear that they will be abandoned or rejected. Now, they're both drawn to each other because they both confirm each other's belief systems. So we, okay, wait, let me try to (laughs) unpack that a little bit. Um, So we're drawn to someone because they reaffirm our belief systems, but it's not necessary. It's like our fears, right? Yeah. So, I mean, beliefs can definitely be fears at the same time. So if I have an inherent belief that I am going to be abandoned, yeah. whether or not I'm aware of that belief, sometimes it's very deep in the subconscious, I will attract situations where that emotional experience is going to play out the way that I believe it's going to. <laughs> I will choose people in that way. I might find that people who are secure and consistent and who won't leave me, I might say, you're boring. Um, and I'm like, I don't have chemistry with those people, but you recreate that emotional experience that is rooted in the belief system that you believe in. Isn't it so interesting though, because those seem like they would be negative experiences, uh, from our childhood or even, you know, like in your adult life, they don't feel good. So why would we keep recreating them? Because it's in your subconscious. So on a logical level, you're like, oh yeah, that bad boy who has red flags all over, who cheated on his last three girlfriends, who I met at the bar while I was drunk. I I totally shouldn't like this guy. And then he texts and you're like, okay, just this one, this one, one drink I'll go. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, Logically, we know we shouldn't, but our decisions, our actions are, are usually compelled by how we feel and how we feel um, isn't something that we can control with our logical mind. A lot of it stems from our subconscious. 95% of how we feel and what we do is governed by our subconscious mind. So once you become aware, I mean, because when you're talking about this ancient and avoid, anxious and avoidance, I mean, you're definitely describing a lot of my relationships. So, mm-hmm. and I've, as I said, I've become aware of that as I've gotten older. Um, but how do you change? I mean, I, the way that you're describing it as so subconscious, is it that you go to therapy, you have this new awareness, but like, how do you actually change that dynamic? Yeah. Great question. And about the studies show that between 20 to 25 percent of the population can, uh, does change their attachment style. And there's different ways. So um, 
do you have a do you identify more with an anxious or an avoidant Probably I identify more with anxious, but I okay. did. I was going to ask you this too, I, because I read that um, you can kind of, if you're one, you're probably the other two sometimes. Like you can kind of vacillate between the two. Is that true? So, so you have one that's predominant. And again, okay. this is pretty much wired in you by their age of around two years old. And the way they've tested this, and it's been repeated uh, over and over again, this test, it's called the strange um the strange situation test where they actually test babies and see how they react when their mother leaves the room. Um, and then they follow these babies until adulthood and they, the attachment style pretty much stays exactly the same. And so what's tricky though, is you can develop coping mechanisms that look like it's the other type of attachment. Style. Oh, so okay. for example, for me, I, I am formally um, had an anxious attachment style. I have what's called an earned secure TEDx speaker and psychologist Jolie Hamilton or landed in like the 10th relationship in a row where the same kind of dynamic is happening, then that's the time to take yourself to therapy. That's not about the relationship. Get yourself to therapy and start from there because just taking a year off even and doing intense therapy with enough time, like all the time that you right now relate to a person and spend like trying to make it work. If you worked on yourself that way, how much different would your life feel? And I mean, that was an invaluable time for me to like the time when I focused on, oh, I, I have to change my patterns. I grew up in a terribly dysfunctional household, which meant I was terribly dysfunctional in my first marriage. It, it really didn't matter what he was doing. It mattered that I finally decided to try over, try again with myself. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Try again with yourself. And I also think that it's, it's not one or the other, you know, I think that it, it, like you said, it depends on um, maybe the time or the place you are in your life. I've done a lot of my own individual work so much so that I (laughs) used to be like, why am I not fixed yet? You know, like this is just like, this is, I'm done with that. Right. Like I've done enough therapy. I've done enough intensives. I've done enough, whatever. And again, it would be bumping up against myself in these relationships. And my therapist actually, you know, I'd say like, why am I still in this place? Whatever. She's like, this is not the same place. This yes. is a deeper place. And this is the, the layer that she would not have been able to get to if you hadn't done all that work, but maybe there's still some wounding that needs to be healed. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love the image of the spiral for that. If oh, yeah. I, we always come back sticky spot. It's going to be in the same spot in the spiral, but we come back to it at a deeper layer. We never step in the same river twice. You know, Heraclitus said that like 4,000 years ago, and we really don't. We're not just recapitulating. Relationship coach on how to survive a breakup, Laura Yates. What kind of things do you see um, just with most people when they're trying to get over a relationship? What are the most common struggles that you see? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it can be it can be um, different for each person, but mainly people really struggle with ruminating over the past, you know, and feeling like they can't get over what they did wrong or what their ex did wrong, feeling like the whole thing was really unfair. And ultimately, you know, they feel like they really struggle to be able to let go. I think everything's kind of snatched away from us, isn't it? When we had such high hopes for that relationship and we were so in love with that person and then all of a sudden it gets taken away from us, it makes us question everything. And, uh, you know, I think that the hardest thing 
about breakups are that it is like a loss, but we struggle to know how to grieve for it because we can't grieve for it in the same way that we would, you know, if someone had passed away because our ex is out there walking around in the world still. So we kind of feel like in this no man's land and it's really difficult to know where to turn. So I think people really struggle with finding that sense of closure. That's yeah, that tends to be a real common struggle that I see. Right. Even if you were the one who initiated the breakup, yeah. you can kind of go through those feelings, right? Definitely. Yeah, it's 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 really hard for the person who did initiate it. You know, I think that we we always think that the person who did the breaking up, like it's so much easier for them, but oftentimes that really isn't the case. And it's almost like then if you are that person, you don't have an excuse to feel sad about it and right. to ha- and to be able to grieve for it because we worry that people will think, well, you know, you made that decision. So now you have to you have to live with that and you have to get on with your life and you don't you don't deserve to feel that way. Um, so that can be a real struggle as well. Do you think that it's just grieving the idea of a relationship? That's one of the most difficult things. I think so. Yeah, I think people put so much on what that relationship means in terms of their identity Uh, I think people feel a lot of pressure to you know to have to have the perfect relationship and especially especially you know people who are getting into their 30s as well you know we feel like that pressure to have to have it all have to have the marriage and start the family and all of those things so when when someone walks away from that or when that relationship is taken away for some reason we kind of like question our whole place in the world and sometimes it, it can really impact you know our hopes and dreams and and we can really struggle to be able to know how to move forwards from that. Once again, Amy Chan. So once you become aware, I mean, because when you're talking about this anxious and avoid anxious and avoidance, I mean, you're definitely describing a lot of my relationships. So mm-hmm. and I've, as I said, I've become aware of that as I've gotten older. Um, but how do you change? I mean, I, the way that you're describing it as so subconscious is it that you go to therapy, you have this new awareness, but like, how do you actually change that dynamic? Yeah. Great question. And about the studies show that between 20 to 25 percent of the population can, uh, does change their attachment style, and there's different ways. So, um, do you have a? Do you identify more with an anxious or an avoidant? Probably, I identify more with anxious. But I okay. did. I was going to ask you this too, I, because I read that um, you can kind of, if you're one, you're probably the other two. Sometimes, like you can kind of vacillate between the two. Is that true? So, so you have one that's predominant, and again, okay. this is pretty much wired in you by their age of around two years old, and the way they've tested this, and it's been repeated uh, over and over again. This test, it's called the strange, um, the, the strange situation test, where they actually test babies and see how they react when their mother leaves the room, um, and then they follow these babies until adulthood, and they the attachment style pretty much stays exactly the same. And so, what's tricky though is you can develop coping mechanisms that look like it's the other type of attachment style. Oh, so okay. for example, for me, I, I am formerly um, had an anxious attachment style. I have what's called an earned secure through work. I've been able to become secure in my attachment style now. Um, but what used to happen in my early 20s, I would just call, 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 show up unexpectedly. Um, that's how I handled the, the anxiety. 
And uh, once I realized that that was crazy and maybe stalkerish, <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I'm not going to do that. So I went the other way around and I would reject people before they had any chance to reject me. I would take any inclination that they might be disinterested and reject them. So on the outside, it looked like I was an avoidant, but I was an anxious masquerading as an avoidant. It, it still stemmed from a fear of being abandoned and rejected. And that's why it's important to look at what is a fundamental fear. Um, and the way that I'll share how um, I rewired my uh, attachment style. And there's, there, there definitely is a way to do it and um, it takes time and it takes practice and it takes discipline. And so the very first step is awareness um, and then starting to look at what your tendencies are when you're triggered. And so I realized there's certain things that would trigger me, um, which would be the two main things is if the person I like didn't initiate uh, making plans with me or if they were inconsistent in their communication. When this happened, the exact same thing would occur. I would go into a spiral, I would make up these stories, and then I would do something that would sabotage. And so once I started to actually map out what I was doing, and then I start to look at, okay, what are the actual facts? And so I realized that how so many times I was just creating so many stories and assumptions and projecting. If someone didn't call me back right away, I would automatically be like, oh my gosh, you don't like me. He's not into you. I look like a fool. I better do something and sabotage this. When they were busy at work, they were traveling. Um, and so I started to just look at my reactions and start changing how I would react. And this would be really difficult in the beginning because my natural tendency was you feel the uncomfortable emotion and you act on it right away. You send that text, you make that call, you do that thing. And so I think the very first thing after awareness is pause, hmm. the art of the pause. And um, learning that the emotion will move through your body it takes 90 seconds for emotion to move through your body. Anything more than that are the stories that you're attaching to that emotion. That's why that can turn that one little thing of panic or anxiety can turn into a spiral that can last days, if not weeks. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, therapy will help. There's actually um, therapists that are trained in attachment therapy. Um, I did hypnosis, which worked really, really well for me. Um, Hypnosis works on about 70% of the population. So I think you need to find what works for you. And also, um, attachment is on a spectrum. And so you could be, if you're highly, highly, um, you know, anxious on the spectrum, if you date someone who's highly avoidant, it's going to keep rewounding you. Yeah. And so understanding that, yes, you might have crazy chemistry with that person, but it's likely going to end up like the last many times which is complete pain and heartbreak and that's not helping you heal and so look for partners who are more secure because when you're with someone with who is more secure in their attachment you will start to rebuild your trust you will start to rewire those associations that oh someone who doesn't call you back in an hour that doesn't mean that the connection is uh, is abandoned or you're going to get rejected if you know anything about me, you know I am a massive creature of comfort. It is one of my top priorities in life to make my surroundings comfortable at all times. So when I found Cozy Earth, I quickly scooped up all of the luxurious bedding and loungewear that I could. 
it felt very on brand for me. But then I went on a trip with a girlfriend not too long ago where she could not stop commenting on how cute and comfy my pajamas were, which then made me realize they may also be my new favorite travel companion as well. Guys, I am not kidding when I say you will experience unmatched softness and smoothness with all of Cozy Earth's products. The temperature-regulating bamboo joggers and pullover crew add comfort and a touch of style to any travel ensemble, and their bedding comes in the most adorable totes, making it a super easy gift to give anyone. Discover your next destination for ultimate comfort at Cozy Earth. Visit CozyEarth.com and use our code VELVETSEDGE at the checkout for an exclusive 35% off and let them know we sent you when you're at the checkout. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of MoviePhone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Laura Yates on how to feel your feelings. Well, so I think that brings up a good question. I think a lot of people, when you say feel your feelings or go through the process, would be like, well, do what? What do I do? Right. Like, how do you yeah. do that? Well, do yeah, you have suggestions? Definitely. I mean, something that I really like and I encourage people I work with to do, and many of them find it really helpful, is to actually just write out your feelings. Like when we're going through a breakup, our heads are just like the thoughts are going around in our head and it can just drive us crazy. And if we don't have a place to put that, then it, 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 we can't kind of resolve anything. We can't make sense of anything. So the act of actually writing it down or journaling, some people call it, just putting pen to paper and writing down everything that's in your head, it can feel really, really cathartic. And it doesn't have to make sense. You know, you don't have to show it to anybody. But then if you do read it back, it, you can actually kind of figure out, okay, 
well, I'm triggered by this. This is what's happening. And you can kind of make sense of everything a little bit more. It's a bit like a free form of therapy. Um, So I recommend that people do that. And then things like, you know, things that make you feel really grounded. So going for a walk in nature, if you can, or just going out for a walk, moving your body in some way, um, moving your body gently, ideally at this point. Um, Things like mindfulness and meditation. And, you know, I know that these all sound like really boring things to do. They don't sound very sexy. They're not like that instant quick fix that we all want. But if you start to just implement one of those things or even all of them, if you can, a little bit each day, you will start to notice a shift in how you're feeling emotionally because it's just encouraging you to be more in tune with what you're feeling, to be more observant of it and to be less reactive to it as well. You know, like if you can journal, for example, at those that time where you might really want to text your ex and you might be like really furious and really angry and really want to just shout at them and say something to them, Instead of actually texting your ex, if you just actually let it all out of your head and write it down, it kind of has the same effect. It gets it out of your system, but without like that horrible (laughs) feeling of then you've texted your ex and now you feel really regretful about it. Right. Well, also, I was. We've all been there. uh, Yeah, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) I also feel like a part, I know for me personally, parts of breakups that are really hard is you do lose a sense of your identity a little bit because mm-hmm. you've you've been this couple for so long, right? And now That's you're on it. your own. So it's almost like this process of getting to know yourself again. Exactly. Yeah. Getting to know yourself, rediscovering your identity, rediscovering who you are. And, you know, when you are just through those real first initial raw stages, what I really love to you know get or request people to do or encourage them to do rather is, is to, you know, start to re-engage with things that you used to love to do because we can and you know we're all guilty of this to a certain extent we we can lose ourselves in a relationship we can lose what we're passionate about and we can stop doing those things that we always used to do when we were single because you know we're in a relationship and we spend more evenings together and that just becomes more of a habit whereas if you can just reconnect to yourself and go back to those old passions or find ways to discover new ones you know create new new memories for yourself that's a big one actually if you can find ways to create new habits and new memories that you actually associate with this new chapter in your life and you as an individual rather than you and your ex and your relationship like that creates new neural pathways in the brain which then makes it easier to move on because yeah you're creating those new memories for yourself that you only associate with with you so that's that's really important samantha burns on the importance of figuring out who you are you're never going to have, you're never going to be able to work through conflict because so many people like, dig their heels in and they're fighting about their point and they just want to feel heard. And they, the more their partner defends their side, the more you just kind of, um, again, like kind of dig your heels in and nothing ever gets resolved. So it's really about validating your partner's emotional experience. It's not about whether you think they're right or wrong or that they're like, rational or irrational it's just the fact that your partner is feeling a certain way so it's your job to step into their shoes and understand why they're feeling that way and being able to empathize with them until you said you're an empath so i would imagine that's going to be really important to you is like someone can feel with you right it is you're right and that's i think you can go to, i can go to extremes at least like i being an empath, I have to put up super strong boundaries in relationships because I can go too extreme with it where I feel everything they're feeling. And like you said, you can kind of revolve around that person. 
But right. it is all about learning about yourself. And I think you're right about how your partner wants to receive love. So it's once you get in the relationship, the work still continues of vulnerability oh. and all of that stuff. Absolutely. And I think it's funny because like when you're single and dating, it feels like that's the biggest right. hurdle. But the truth is, once you find your one partner that you're going to be with and commit to, then it's just the two of you for the rest of your life. Right. It doesn't just all magically like live happily ever after. That's when like the real effort begins. Because when you're dating, you know, once you find someone you really love, it's all exciting and the honeymoon stage and all these you know, chemicals that make you feel so excited and passionate. But then it's like, well, what happens, you know, two kids later or when we lose our job or we have to move or, you know, like all these life issues get thrown at you. And like you have this one person by your side, which leads me to say another mistake I see couples make is like they don't have each other's back. They don't mm-hmm. have a teammate mentality. They have like the me factor instead of the factor. And they're not really you know, taking into account their partner's wishes or wants or desires. And that's one of like the hardest parts about being in a committed relationship is, is balancing, prioritizing yourself and your own kind of independence, creating a healthy interdependence and being able to put your, your partner's needs first sometimes. Like even when you don't feel like doing something, you know, you're constantly questioning like, what is it that they want? How can I make their life easier? How can I make them happy? And when we both hold that space for our partners, like they're also going to be your needs. So everyone's needs are getting met, but you can't only focus on yourself. Right. What do you think the biggest thing people are really looking for in relationships is? So I don't think they necessarily know because I think they keep it more, you know, superficial or like everyone will say, I just want someone who makes me laugh or I just want like really hot sex or I just want someone who will go on dates with me. But I think what we really need, which sounds like you like, is like we need safety. We need that reliability, dependability, consistency, knowing our partner has our back. We need that open communication, someone to speak our love language. Basically, like an emotional home. So I always say your partner is your emotional home who just makes you feel like seen, heard, understood, and gives you a sense of belonging in this crazy world. I love this conversation. And honestly, like hearing you talk, you're stating all of the things I've been looking for. And it truly is really hard to find out there. I think that it's a great conversation to start, though, for people to really put the foundation back in relationships and the vulnerability and getting to know yourself just as much as you want to get to know your partner. Absolutely. And then I guess one question for you, Kelly, is how's the manifesting going? (laughs) (laughs) Has anyone entered into your, your life, your universe? Maybe. (laughs) Um, You know, actually, yes. And what's been happening for me is the older I've gotten and the more dating experiences that I have had, I've been writing down what's not working for me and then what's working. And I manifested years ago and I do think that it was a little more surface, you know, there Mm -hmm. wasn't as much true depth to the qualities that I was looking for in a person. And that's really changed for me over the years. So I haven't specifically set out and said, okay, I'm writing down this man that I want to find, but I've been very intentional about the kind of life that I want to live and the yes. kind of partner that I'm looking for. Um, and yeah, I've, so I think manifesting, <laughs> I think where people go wrong, right? Manifesting can seem very passive, 
But yeah. it's not because it's not like this like I'm gonna make this 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 and send it out to the universe and just kick my feet up and see what comes my way. It's like you're you're writing it all down. Jolie Hamilton on how to establish ground rules and maintain trust within a relationship. Well, that's so that's such a good point about establishing the rules because I know for me within a relationship, if we can't, um, I don't want to call them ground rules, but set the boundaries around certain conversations or certain situations, I never can get that calm in my nervous system that you're talking about. So no matter what's actually happening, my body is telling me, no, 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 no. You're not safe. You're not safe because we've never set up, you know, what the guidelines are. And although they may change over time. And I think that's something I'm learning too, is boundaries, you know, change and they're fluid and all of these things, but like setting the ground, the foundational conversation of this is what I want. This is my goal. This is the conscious part of our decision of this relationship is so integral for me feeling safe. Yes, absolutely. And there's no shame in saying the word ground rules. Like when you're talking about setting up a relationship, what would be, what would be more normal than walking into a new job and saying, okay, so what's expected of me? You want, who wants a job with no job description? That would be horrible. I've had those. They're terrible. I, and as a business owner, I always have to define the parameters for everybody I'm working with. Right. And when there aren't clear parameters, there's no repercussion that I can actually put in place. And there's no way for them to know when they're succeeding either. So it's really an unfair place to start a relationship from. And when people are practicing monogamy, often they just rely on the idea that there's this cultural norm that like I've, I've had a lot of conversations that start off with me saying, so what's your monogamy agreement? And the person says to me, well, you know, he knows the rules. I'm like, well, but what are the rules? Tell me, just tell me more about the rules. And they'll tell me a little bit about the rules. And I say, so when did you talk about these? They're like, I mean, he, he knows like, okay, so let's go back to ground zero and talk our way through this because explicit communication isn't just about making rules that make you feel safe. It's actually about being vulnerable and asking for what you want, which is how you can get what you want. Cannot ever feel secure and safe if you're just trusting that someone has read your mind and will deliver it to you. Right. And also, what are you actually even trusting? I guess you're saying yes. you read your mind, yeah. but like, I, to me, now that I've gotten older and been through bad relationships or, you know, cheating relationships where the trust was broken, I probably was just thinking, oh, we know, we think the same thing. Yeah. We have the same boundaries within a relationship. Um, now I'm understanding how important those conversations are just yeah. for establishing even just communication between the two of you so that you know, okay, when he leaves this house, we have said this thing. And if that isn't how this goes, that is a a boundary violation to our relationship. Right, right. Because that's what cheating is. People talk about cheating as if we have some definition of it. We don't, not really. We, you know, like lots of people think cheating is sex with another part of another person or flirting with another person cheating is the breaking of any relationship agreement right so i'm i'm ethically not so for me to lie about a relationship and and keep it a secret that would be the violation not the connection right so if we think about that then how about if we reframe what relationships are all together and just say your relationship doesn't just depend on the agreements. Your relationship is the agreements. 
Samantha Burns on the eight mistakes people make in a relationship. When we can't listen, understand, validate, and empathize our partner, um, you're never going to have, you're never going to be able to work through conflict because so many people like, dig their heels in and they're fighting about their point and they just want to feel heard. And they, the more their partner defends their side, the more you just kind of, um, again, like kind of dig your heels in and nothing ever gets resolved. So it's really about validating your partner's emotional experience. It's not about whether you think they're right or wrong or that they're like rational or irrational. It's just the fact that your partner's feeling a certain way. So it's your job to step into their shoes and understand why they're feeling that way and being able to empathize with them until you said you're an empath. So I would imagine that's going to be really important to you is like someone can feel with you. Right. It is. You're right. And that's, I think you can go to, I can go to extremes at least. Like I, being an empath, I have to put up super strong boundaries in relationships because I can go too extreme with it where I feel everything they're feeling. And like you said, you can kind of revolve around that person, but it is all about learning about yourself. And I think you're right about how your partner wants to receive love. So it's, once you get in the relationship, the work still continues of vulnerability and all of that stuff. Absolutely. And I think it's funny because like when you're single and dating, it feels like that's the biggest hurdle. But the truth is, once you find your one partner that you're going to be with and commit to, then it's just the two of you for the rest of your life. Right. It doesn't just all magically like live happily ever after. That's when like the real effort begins. Because when you're dating, you know, once you find someone you really love, it's all exciting and the honeymoon stage and all these you know, chemicals that make you feel so excited and passionate. But then it's like, well, what happens, you know, two kids later or when we lose our job or we have to move or, you know, like all these life issues get thrown at you. And like you have this one person by your side, which leads me to say another mistake I see couples make is like they don't have each other's back. They don't mm-hmm. have a teammate mentality. They have like the me factor instead of the factor. And they're not really you know, taking into account their partner's wishes or wants or desires. And that's one of like the hardest parts about being in a committed relationship is is balancing, prioritizing yourself and your own kind of independence, creating a healthy interdependence and being able to put your your partner's needs first sometimes. Like even when you don't feel like doing something, you know, you're constantly questioning like what is it that they want? How can I make their life easier? How can I make them happy? And when we both hold that space for our partners, like they're also going to be needing your needs. So everyone's needs are getting met, but you can't only focus on yourself. For more of these stories, you can listen to the full podcast with each of these experts. Just search Velvet's Edge wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you haven't yet, please go rate and review this podcast with the topics that you guys want more of and that are helping you the most. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Velvet's Edge podcast with Kelly Henderson, where we believe everyone has a little velvet and a little edge. Subscribe for more conversations on life, style, beauty, and relationships. Search Velvet's Edge wherever you get your podcasts. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.